the evening sermon text from Psalm chapter 42 and Psalm chapter 43. Would like to invite you to join me there. And uh, as you're finding your place there, I just want to, again, convey the, uh, the blessing it is that we have uh, to be able to gather together in, uh, in this assembly as the Lord's redeemed people. Psalm 42 and 43, the title of the sermon this evening is The Burden and Bliss of Being Human. Hear the word of the Lord. As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all day long, where is your God? These things I remember and I pour out my soul within me. For I used to go along with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with the voice of joy and thanksgiving, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him for the help of his presence. O my soul is in despair within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of the Jordan and the peaks of Hermon from Mount Mazar. Deep calls to deep at the sound of your waterfalls. All your breakers in your ways have rolled over me. The Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime and his song will be with me in the night. A prayer to the God of my life. I will say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As a shattering of my bones, my adversaries revile me while they say to me all day long, where is your God? Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. Vindicate me, O God, and plead my case against an ungodly nation. O deliver me from the deceitful and unjust man, for you are the God of my strength. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the, of, of the enemy? O send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling places. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. And upon the lyre, I shall praise you, O God, my God. Why are you in despair, O my soul? Why are you disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. And let's ask again for his help. Father, we're thankful uh, that you've given us this opportunity to uh, to consider your word, and we pray for your help. Our, our trust and our rest is in you, and we ask that you would glorify yourself through your word today. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> it was January 19th, 2023, 1 p.m. Date and time that I had been dreading for uh, for several months. I uh, wasn't looking forward to it. It's, it's something that happens uh, annually, sometimes every, uh, you know, every other year. Um, and you may be wondering, what, what, what is this ominous date that is on your calendar 
that happened just a few days ago this week. And uh, it was a dentist appointment. And uh, for some of you, uh, that seems a little bit maybe dramatic uh, to make that big of a deal over a dentist appointment. Uh, Others of you are with me uh, in in your uh, despising of this necessary evil. So I get to the dentist and um, I don't, I guess the dentist physician helper, not not the actual dentist on themselves, and she's uh, just, you know, pleasant, says, how are you doing today? And I said, well, I was a lot better until I had to come in here. And she's like, wow, well, you know, it's, uh, this is kind of a necessary evil. And I say, yeah, that, that's, that's what I hear, but uh, I, I just, I, I can't stand it. I've, I've not looked, I've, you know, dreaded this for several months. And all I can think about is you getting that little sharp device. And it's like, you, you don't just get as close to the gum as possible. You wanna make sure you kind of get in the gum just enough to just nerve me a little bit so that I come out of my, come out of my seat. And, uh, and the dentist came in and, you know, he just, uh, again, another little pleasantry and, uh, and his, his remarks was, you know, just another day in paradise. And, and I was like, well, I, I, don't, I don't see today as that day. I, I never enjoy going to uh, the dentist. And, uh, and as I was in the office, um, and, and it, you know, this applies not even to just a dentist, but even just uh, like primary care, sort of doctor's physician kind of stuff, you always have to fill out this paperwork. And so as I'm looking through uh, this, this paperwork and I'm anticipating this week's sermon, I count up that there are at least 70 boxes, at least, at least 70 things that can go wrong with you. All related to dentistry in some, in some ways. And, uh, and so I, each time I, I have to fill out something like that, I'm amazed at all the things that can go wrong, that can go bad in life. And simultaneously, I'm grateful for um, every unchecked box uh, that, I can, that, that I can skip over is something that's not an issue with me yet. And it just reminds me of all the ways that our bodies can have problems. And some of these are external problems, some of these are internal problems. And what these two Psalms do is they draw out the complexity of humanity. We are uniquely made. We have our own DNA. We have our own preferences. For some of you, you might consider an ideal dinner tonight might be some sort of or form of fried food. Others may think that just sounds nasty to me. I'd rather have something along the lines of being uh, grilled. Some of you may prefer living in the city. Others of you may want a quiet place out in the country. Some of you enjoy sports. Some of you could care less about athletics. Some prefer poetry over novels, noise over quietness, being around a few people rather than being in a place full of people. Each of us could look at this doctor's questionnaire and those 70 boxes would be filled out different than the person sitting next to us. And yet, despite our complexity, these two Psalms will draw us closer to each other as we examine what life is like as life is lived before our Creator. We are more like each other than what we realize. Derek Kidner said that these two Psalms are one of the most sadly beautiful in all of the Psalter. Uh, These two are considered a lament. It's it's expressed as a longing to be 
in the presence of God. The psalmist is going to struggle with faith and trust while seeking to find solace in God. What do these two psalms teach us? They teach us that we can bring everything to God. There's nothing, nothing that is so insignificant that we cannot bring it to God with trust and with hope that he listens. And not only that we can bring all matters to him, but that we can continually come to him on three separate occasions, each of which I'm going to refer to as refrains. The first is in verse five, the second one is in uh, verse 11, and then the third one is gonna be in, in Psalm 43, five. I'll refer to these as a refrains. The psalmist is expressing, saying, hope in God. But this is not the only spot that this is found in the Bible. Of the numerous places, I want to mention just one. Psalm 71, 3. Be to me a rock of habitation, which I may continually come. You have given commandment to save me, for you are my rock and my fortress. So these two Psalms both raise and answer the question, where is your God? But before we look at them a little closely, there's a couple of questions I wanna to seek to answer just as we think about humanity as a whole. So maybe uh, attempting to do this from the top of the Empire State Building and later on we'll just get street level, 34th Street, uh, to talk about what it looks like in Psalm 42, Psalm 43. So what, what does it mean to be human? Or another way to ask the question is, who are we? We are embodied souls. God's given us a body. God's given us a soul. We're sufferers. We're sinners. We have limitations. We have weaknesses. Who are we in relation to Christ? Apart from him, the Bible would describe us as enemies. In him, we are a kingdom of priests unto God. Isn't that remarkable? Apart from Christ, you're an enemy. In him, you're part of a kingdom, a kingdom of priests unto God. We are loved and we are liked. Who are we in relation to one another? We're brothers and sisters adopted, adopted into the family of God that bears a unique responsibility and privilege to one another. So what are some of these matters that have a tendency to press into our humanity that can uh, cause some disruption that are there? Well, one of those would be just our belief system. What do we orient our beliefs around? Is it God, is it word or his word or would it be something else? There's several groups that are out, many of you know that I'm, I'm dabbling around in some, in some form and measure into the counseling world and there are a, a number of people who are seeking to answer that question and they are developing uh, entire theories in order to answer the question of who are we and what are we like and, and, and how can we become better 
people. And one of those theories, I'm not going to go into detail about this, but one of those theories is, is an attachment theory. And that theory basically uh, supposes that the trust you developed as a child is going to determine the degree of trust that you have in others. It's relative. How, how you spent the first years, few years of your life, it'll be relative to the trust that you extend toward others now. And there's, there are many Christians who are embracing and who are adopting uh, this view. For me personally, the jury's still out. I'm reading a, a good resource on it. I think it's a good resource on it right now. And, and I wanna know, like, is this an over-realized, idolatrous understanding of our humanity? Or does it drill down in some ways and, and help us to better understand what's going on in our inner man? Other matters that press into our understanding of humanity, humanity would be cultural influences. Some of these would be just pure tradition. This is just what I was born doing. This is, this is just the way it's always been. This is just how I think. This is just how I operate. This is just how things go. That would be a cultural influence based on tradition. But we know that culture can also evolve over time and its influence can evolve over time. I want you to consider something that's a hot button issue presently, and that would be homosexuality. There's a, a manual, the Diagnostic and Statistic Manual of Mental Disorders. It's, it's you know, largely adopted among medical profession, professionals. Uh, the, the, first, uh, the first, I think it was 1952 when this was first introduced, and, and when, this was, um, when this was first published, this is, this is how they would describe um, homosexuality. It was considered a mental disorder. It was uh, a sociopathic personality disturbance. That, that's how they defined it. And then a more recent article, uh, one that was published in the American Journal of Psychiatry uh, in September of last year, made this, made this statement. Don't you hear? Judgment that a given behavior is abnormal and requires clinical attention depends on cultural norms that are internalized by the individual and applied by others around them. So you see what, what, what this journal is saying, what this journal is drawing out, because it's, it's, they, they, they've changed the terminology in the DSM, but they're saying that it depends on the cultural norms. It depends on the individual. It depends on others around them. This, this over-realized understanding of self. 50 years ago, or a little more than 50 years ago, humans were denied basic rights based on the color of their skin. Abortion issue for years that in many respects is a cultural issue. So how can people arrive at their conclusions related to gender assignment? What about the valuing of life regardless of ethnicity? What about supporting all of life 
What, how is it that people can arrive at these conclusions that we would say are in clear contradiction to Christian scripture? One way to answer that question is it's due to the noetic effects of sin, sinful nature, sinful humanity. They're, they're only acting and operating within their sinful nature. Judges would answer it in this way. In those days, there was no king and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Or listen to these few excerpts from Romans chapter one that maps on to present day. Paul saying to the church at Rome, they suppressed, they pushed down, they pushed out, they disregarded, they suppressed the knowledge of God. They knew him, but they did not honor him as God. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie, worshiping the created rather than the creator. God gave them over to the lusts of their hearts. God gave them over to degrading passions. God gave them over to a depraved mind. So this is what's in front of us when we consider the culture's influence and impact on what we think about humanity. Another matter that presses in on our understanding of humanity is the church. The church has a responsibility in, in, in how we understand the spirit of the age. Will we bend the knee to culture? Will we look at culture? Will we, will we allow culture to be our hermeneutic and tell us and inform us all the ways in which the Bible should change so that we can be, in the words of some others, sympathetic? Or will the church remain a pillar and buttress of truth? Our physiological makeup, our body, that presses into our understanding of humanity. For most of my life, I've enjoyed 2015 eyesight. That's, that's, that's better than good. Go to the optometrist. He tells me, he says, I get somebody like you about once every three months, but let me, he's like, you got fighter pilot eyes, but, but, but let me tell you something. Once you get to a certain age, that eyesight is going to diminish. I don't have 2015 vision anymore. I'm, I'm tromboning some things. I've got my Bible and my notes, you know, a little further back here so that I can see it. In terms of my physical ability, again, I was athletic growing up. I'd go have the annual yearly physical. And many times when the nurses or doctors and say, we can, I can tell that you're an athletic just by the way that uh, your, 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 your heart, I can, how I can listen to your heart and stuff. That's no longer true. I, I play Blake uh, in one game of one-on-one and I'm winded. That's like, I, I've got to take a break for a little bit. I could still beat him and could still beat him in a race, but my time's coming. It's a reality that the outward is wasting away. And even if it's not just the natural things, like my grandmother, uh, we just celebrated her 98th birthday this past week. And she, she, she still has, she's still pretty sharp in her mind. She loves the Lord. 
I mean, loves the Lord. Every time that I'm around her, she's, she tells me her Sunday routine. She's no longer able to, to go to her church. So she tells me her routine of which pastor she's listening to, what they're preaching on and all of that. And there's been two comical things that she said lately. She, she just said, you know, not, none of this stuff in my body's working anymore. Like they've replaced it, but it's no longer working. And then she's also said, the first question I have when I see the Lord is this, why did you wait so long to bring me home? But even, there's, even, even with the, the natural decline of our life, there are other matters physiologically that impact day-to-day living. It can, it can be of detriment. It can be a struggle. It can put pressure on life. And that's part of the burden of our humanity. So it seems like we're back at the doctor's office again. Yet instead of ticking off boxes with symptoms that we are or are not experiencing, there's a plethora of options in front of us that are looking for an answer. What what is the reason life exists? What is my purpose here in this life? Humanly speaking, this is anthropology. But what we want to do this afternoon is we want to develop and tease out a biblical anthropology, which recognizes our direct connection to our creator. You see, everybody, everybody has a doctrine of man. Whether you believe in evolution uh, or there, there's some other cause, uh, cosmically dynamic you know, thing that happened that brought on our existence or some other variation, everybody possesses a doctrine of humanity. And within this universal doctrine of man, most people in the world are likely going to recognize a cosmic creator. Even many that we, most people that we rub shoulders with would agree and say we were created by God. But from here, there runs two, I think, at least two primary views. One would be this. There is a God who created us. He's good. In his creation, he longs for our happiness. He wants us to be the truest version and expression of ourselves. In his design, he gives us autonomy to be whatever it is we want to do or be. In other words, he created and then he steps back from that creation. One of the ways I've seen this flesh out when, my, when, when I was a, a barista at Starbucks, but I had one of my fellow co-workers say to me one time, Nate, I feel like a man trapped in a woman's body. Biologically, we know that this is an impossibility, but the inner self is what becomes the determinative and decisive factor. What a person feels becomes paramount. And to deny what you truly feel would be to live a lie. And to disagree with the person acting upon their inner intuition would be unloving. So for me to say to my coworker, I care about you. And I cannot affirm that you are a man because that would be unloving. That would not be accurate. To to do this, to have this kind of conversation would be received and viewed by her as unloving. After all, what right do I have to disagree with her? 
What right do any of us have to disagree with somebody when God has created us for our own happiness, when self is paramount? Now, the bigger question is, what right do we have to disagree with God's wisdom in our creative design? The second would be this. There is a God who has created us. He is good. In his creation, he aims to receive all the glory from our life. He longs for our holiness. Therefore, he wants us to be humble and obedient, seeking first and foremost joy in his son, Jesus Christ. He created and is directly involved with his creation. Both views sound, both views sound familiar, but they're actually quite foreign. In the former, self is the object. In the latter, Christ is the object. To make the former compatible, you have to malign scripture. And in an honest evaluation, the former is going to fall woefully short biblically, logically, philosophically. Biblically, there's no scriptural support that we are created for our own happiness or self-pleasure or that we have autonomy and authority over self. Rather, all of life is lived before God and in relation to Christ. We will give an account to him. Logically, when self is center, you become your own God, which ultimately comes in conflict with others' view of self. Who's right? All of us cannot be simultaneously right. Therefore, this is a logical fallacy. Philosophically, the former views betray its own philosophical underpinnings because you simply, you simply cannot love whatever you want to love or do whatever it is that you want to do. People are going to have their own presupposed limitations. Calvin in his Institutes of the Christian Religion said this, nearly all wisdom we possess, this is to say true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts, knowledge of God and knowledge of ourselves. So that's uh, a, lengthy up, a lengthy introduction. It, it sets up some things. But now let's look more closely at Psalm 42 and 43. Humanity's burden. He expresses a longing for God at a time when God seems distant. We see this in the first few verses of 42. As the deer pants for the water, so my soul pants for you, O oh God. My soul thirsts for God, the living God. When can I come before you? Tears have been my food. So instead of finding satisfaction in God, the psalmist expresses that tears have replaced sustenance during the day and night. As if that weren't enough, others are mocking him by saying, where is your God? As the psalmist draws upon the past, remembrance brings a bitter sorrow. These things I remember and I pour out my soul within me. For I used to go along with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with the voice of joy and thanksgiving, a multitude keeping festival. He's saying, I once led others. 
I was joyful, thankful, but at present, there is this vivid and sorrow-filled reminder that all right now is not what it once was. What's happening here? God seems or appears to him distant. Others are even looking upon his life. They recognize something's, something's different about him. And rather than encouraging him toward God, they're mocking. Where is he? They're, they're attempting to undermine that God is present with his people. And the psalmist uses their mockery as an appeal to God. It's as if he is saying, how will you answer their question for where you are? So when a Christian suffers, one of the questions that might arise is this, where is the Lord in this? And we see again and again that others look at these moments of suffering to further drive themselves away from God and they oftentimes attempt to poke holes in our trust in him. So what do you do when God seems distant? How do you answer the questions that arise in your own hearts? What happens when others' mockery might, even for just a few moments, seem like a plausible and reasonable question? When can I come before you, O God? Where are you? So what do you do? You talk to God and you talk to yourself. What do you say to yourself? I think it helps us that the psalmist here, uh, he, gives a, he gives an assessment of his present condition. He asks this pressing question, why, why is my soul in this condition? What's going on here? Several descriptions are provided that describe the present condition of his soul. He's in despair. He's dejected. He's discouraged. He's cast down. He's sad. He's restless. There's turmoil. He is disturbed within. And we shouldn't just assume that this is only a quiet struggle. Disquieted means to murmur, to growl, to roar. Sometimes this is how I describe moments like these in my life. I'll say, my soul right now feels like choppy waters. It's like I'm white capping within. And the question that he's posing in this moment is a temporal one. Yet the perceived distance makes it feel eternal. And though it is temporal, eternity is at stake in these moments. This is a moment of crisis. You are going to turn somewhere when questions arise and despair is your food night and day. You're going to turn somewhere. You're going to turn to something. So can you describe what is happening in your soul? Whether it's despair or something else that you are wrestling with, eternity. You have words for this? Do you have categories for this? Do you sit with this internal angst long enough that you can describe the situation? That you are able to discern how you are responding in this present situation? And that you are able to consider both of these questions. When can I come to him and where is he? What is it the psalmist says to himself? He's talking to himself, hoping God. I shall again praise him for the help of his presence. Yes, this is what you do. This is what the downcast, trodden in spirit says to himself. God is our help. Hope in him. He is worthy of praise. I will praise him. 
But what happens when the present predicament is unchanged? Verse 5, why am I in despair? Hope in God. Verse 6, oh my God, my soul is in despair within me. He's saying to God, my soul is sunk down. This is an honest conversation to God. Lament requires that we pour out our complaint to God, not at him, to him. When is the last time you had an honest talk with God? God is more than capable of handling your honest questions to him. When is the last time that you poured out your heart to him? Some of the elements of a, of a lament include what we have here is a first person account. They involve petitions to the Lord. They include a description of the trouble. What's, what's happening? What's going on? They provide reasons for which the petition should be heard. They're pleading with the Lord to listen. They are also simultaneously expressing confidence in God and they include a promise of sacrifice and or praise to God. But the struggle continues. Now he attempts to draw upon his memory. Verse six, therefore I remember you from the land of the Jordan, the peaks of Hermon from Mount Mazar. Remembrance here is actually a form of grief. We can't definitively say what he had in mind in mentioning any of these places. Were they times where he experienced the nearness of God? But sometimes we can look back on experiences and it brings a smile. However, this was not one of those occasions. It highlights loss, which is an occasion for sadness. It brings to the forefront the very thing that is missing. And for the psalmist, what is missing is the worship of God. Earlier, water was used as an expression of thirst for God. It was a, a, a fitting description for him to express his longing. Now, it is a reminder of being overwhelmed with despair. How can I have hope when hope feels distant? When it feels like it is elusive. This deep calls to deep at the sound of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves rolled over me. A number of years ago, I was sitting, um, we were in Destin, Florida. And this particular day, uh, the undercurrent or the undertow was a little stronger than it was uh, on some other days. And so, um, so there's still quite a few people that were out in the ocean and, uh, I locked on to this, uh, to this, this lady, I won't call her an older lady, but this lady. And, uh, so I, I saw her walking out into the ocean and I thought, well, this, this is interesting. And, uh, and so she, she walks out there and the first wave hits her, doesn't, doesn't topple her, but it hits her enough to knock her a little bit off balance. So at this point, I, I thought, well, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna continue to watch to see if she's able to, able to recover. And so for probably the next 30 second, 30 to 45 seconds, uh, she, she gets hit wave after wave. And you can see she's, she's trying to get her footing down. She's, she's, she's trying to, to regain her balance. Well, if you've been to the ocean before, you know that it kind of, that, that, as the, um, as that as the waves are coming in, it's also pushing you a little further down the beach. 
So not only is she trying to stabilize herself, but she's getting pushed further down the beach. So I get up from where I'm sitting and I just start to kind of follow. Like I'm not, not running in there full lifeguard kind of uh, thing uh, j- just yet, but I'm, I'm watching her. And then it gets to a point where I realize this, is, yeah, this, is, this has gone on long enough. So I just walk in there, not, you know, not making a scene, I walk in there and I grab a hold of her and I pick her up and set her feet down. And she's like, thank you. Like, I'm struggling just a little bit. It's like, yeah, I, I, I was watching you all along not be able to gain your footing. And in many ways, this, 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 this is what it, it, it looks like when we, we can't seem to get our footing. Wave after wave is knocking us down and we don't know how to stand up. Verse eight brings a short reprieve, but then comes verse nine. Verse nine is what it looks like for faith and struggle to mingle. He acknowledges that God is his rock and then immediately says, why have you forgotten me? You see that? I will say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? This is where faith and struggle mingle. One of the reasons verse nine is helpful is that it's a biblical example to help you see it's okay for you not to be okay. I want you to hear that. It's okay for you not to be okay. At times, Christians struggle to reconcile God's sovereignty and nearness. They struggle to reconcile his love with his goodness. Internally, they might say, how I feel right now, or the impact that this has on me is different than the answer that I believe that I should give. Or they say it in a different way, I'm struggling right now, but I know that I need to be able to say the correct things about God and about suffering right now. It's this, it's this struggle. They're not doing well, yet the pressure they feel is this, well, I need to make sure I say the right thing. The hardest question for me in, in the past year, since my sister passed away, the hardest question for me to answer is how are you? It's a good, it's, it's not a bad question, but the reason it's a hard question is because it's a, it's, it, it comes off as like a one dimensional question. I want to be honest, but I'm confused on what I should say. Many times I don't know how to answer that question. And, and really the, the struggle is my answer right now might be a different answer than if you would ask me the same question yesterday or probably different if you ask me the same question tomorrow. So thoughtful Christians know the correct answer to how we are doing. But it's okay to admit that you're not okay. That doesn't mean that you're doubting. It doesn't mean that you're sinning. Or, and it doesn't mean that something is wrong with you. It simply shows that you're human. And that suffering is hard. And I'm not at all trying to discredit that God is a very present help in trouble. We, we, love, we love Psalm 46, one, it's true, he's our refuge. He's a present help, he's active, he's right there on the scene. But in these two Psalms, the psalmist makes the same refrain three times. 
He knows the character of God, but he's wondering, is he active? Does he remember? Will he act? When will he act? And what do I do until he acts? It takes a humble, and I'll say mature Christian to say, I know that God is full of love. I know that he's a rock. But right now, it just feels like he's forgotten me. And to know what to do when your questions are not compatible with his character and nature. It seemingly continues to digress for the psalmist when he asks, why does he continue to mourn because of the oppression of my enemies? He gives an astounding description here. In verse 9, it, he's saying, or verse 10, he's saying, it is like my bones are being shattered as they revile me all day long with taunts. I mean, oftentimes when we think of a bone shattering, we have primarily in, in view and in mind a physical force. Like something had to have happened for the bones to shatter. But I want to read a few verses that I think help to understand this a little more completely. Proverbs chapter 12, verse 18. There is one who speaks rashly like the thrusts of a sword. Proverbs here speaks rashly and it's like a thrust of a sword. Proverbs 30, verse 14, there is a kind of man whose teeth are like swords, his jaw teeth like knives, to devour the afflicted from the earth and the needy from among men. Speaking of the oppressive man, Psalm 55, 21, his speech was smoother than butter, but his heart was war. His words were softer than oil, Yet they were drawn swords. And to give a verse on the positive side of that, Proverbs 25, 15, by forbearance a ruler may be persuaded and a soft tongue breaks the bone. So he's not talking physical force, but these words are having such an impact and they're so weighty that it feels like his bones are being shattered. And as we come to the second refrain, we can see that words that convey what is going on in our inner man are good. It gives us categories. Sometimes we need to sit with the inner angst long enough to be able to accurately describe what's going on in us. Am I angry? Am I disappointed right now? Do I feel hurt? Do I feel betrayed by God or by others? The psalmist does both. He describes his inner man. He names those he has questions about. He asks the Lord, have you rejected me, O God? My adversaries are saying this. Those who seek to oppress me are saying this. But he isn't only looking at the external pressure points. He is examining himself inwardly as well. Because life is never just one dimensional. You are never only just a sufferer. And as one who lives all of life before God, we are responsible for what we do, for what we do with our suffering. 
How are we going to respond to this suffering? Where will we turn? What will we say? Again, the psalmist helps us here by asking the very question, why? This question here is directed toward himself. It's a good question. It's a good question for other people to ask of us. So why does the psalmist keep going to God in his despair? It's so that he won't turn to sin. If we don't turn to God in our suffering, then we will be tempted to turn to sin. In our sin, there are often contributing factors. Suffering can be one of them. It's not an excuse for sin, not a cause for sin, but a contributing factors for why a person is tempted to choose death rather than life, they matter. So just as we should be honest about what is underneath our despair, we should be honest as well about what we are being tempted with. To hide is to sin. You need to mull on that for a little bit. How do I give a biblical understanding of my humanity and need for Christ? To the extent that you are humble before God. That's, that's how you know. This means you're unwilling to compromise holiness and will therefore allow others unfettered access into your heart. You can help others care for you by helping them know how to care for you. This is the flip side of Galatians chapter six, verse two, carry one another's burdens. And in this way, you'll fulfill the law of Christ, law of Christ. We almost always look at that as how can I carry somebody else's burden? And I want to encourage you to take these one another passages and see them as both windows and mirrors. They're mirrors in the sense that they do reflect. They do reflect how we ought to relate to each other. But they're also windows into our own soul. So when's, when's the last time that you went to another brother or sister in Christ and you said, this is how you, I just want, this, this is a burden that's going on. Can you, can you, I just want to share this with you so you, you maybe know a little bit better on how you can help carry that for me. Or these are some ways that you can be praying for me. These are some ways that you can be encouraging me. These, these are some things that are out of line in life that I have some level and degree of concern for that I'm asking for your prayer and I'm asking for your help. So you see how one another passages are both mirrors and windows into life. The most miserable Christians, Donald Williams said, are those who know Christ but are not living in him. They have the worst of both worlds. They can no longer be satisfied in their old life, yet neither are they satisfied in the Lord. So that's the burden of humanity, the Christian's bliss, Psalm 43. It's that we're able to turn to God as the one who vindicates. His judgment is just. His ways are not our ways. He does not waver in his love or his faithfulness. He doesn't have questions. One reality that's precious here is that it is a good thing that God is the one who vindicates. He is the one who delivers from the unjust man. So we can go to him as the only true deliverer. Romans 5, 9 helps us to see that he delivers us from his wrath. Then very next verse helps us to see he delivers us from the injustice and deceit that we have committed against him. So it's not 
it's not just others as the unjust people in life. We have committed serious sin and treason, treason against God that requires the death, burial, and resurrection of his son, Jesus. Christ is the one in whom we worship. He is the one in whom we wait upon. He is the one in whom we hope in. He's the one we receive help from and the one to whom we offer praise. The psalmist knows that God is provoked to give the very thing that he requests, which is the face of God, not his hand, but his face, not a change of events, but his presence, not only his word, but his nearness. To long for the face of God in Christ is better than to long for suffering to cease. I'm not at all trying to minimize your suffering, but rather to remind you of a precious promise to those who suffer. The nearness of God is our good. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. It also means that the only one who can deliver us is the one who gives purpose to what is happening in our life. He is our strength. He is the song in the night. He is the anchor behind the veil. He is the one who comes to our aid who puts our mind at perfect peace and assures us that he will keep us to the end and that he will deliver us from all our afflictions. His loving kindness will be our guide during the day. It'll be our song during the night. And when the aroma of death is ever present, you can, because of Christ, pray to the God of your life. God is our refuge. He is our light. He is our truth. He is the one who leads us. He is the one who brings us to his holy hill and the one with whom we dwell. What dispels the darkness? What do you do when the darkness won't lift? He's the light and truth from Psalm 43. Suffering can be so hard to see for the one who is suffering. It can be tough to discern, what what do I do next? But his light helps us to see. His truth helps us to understand and enables us to move toward him. Psalm 112, light arises in the darkness for the upright. God is gracious and compassionate and righteous. And as his kingdom of priests, we have access to his altar. God is our exceeding joy. Joy is not in the absence of suffering. Joy is in the presence of of the Lord. Today marks the anniversary, 15 years, that Mitch and Laura's Donovan's oldest daughter, Amber, April's uh, older sister, uh, passed away. And uh, in fact, it's 605. 6.05, 15 years ago, to the, to, to, yeah, to the, to the minute, is, uh, is when I received the call uh, that she had passed away. And each year, friends and family, one of them is, uh, is here with us uh, tonight. We, we often, we, we try to, we, we get together at some point and uh, we, 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 we rejoice in the Lord's kindness. Well, also coming up in two weeks will be the first anniversary of uh, the, the day that my sister passed away. And uh, I, was, I thought about showing a picture. It was a picture that I took in her room the day that she passed away. And it's, it's two frames. It is well with my soul. 
uh, are, are what's written on these two frames. And so uh, I, I took this picture because I was walking into a room and you can imagine just the magnitude of thinking this is where she drew her last breath um, just hours ago. And then you have these two, these two frames. It is well with my soul. And to imagine in both of these situations, what was going on as they were drawing their final breath and then to know immediately, immediately, they're in the presence of their eternal, exceeding joy. To draw final breath on this earth means that we will be in the presence of eternally exceeding joy. The first refrain, it came as a plea for help in light of the remembrance of lost worship. The second refrain came as a prayer for help in light of the enemy's taunts. Where's your God? The last refrain comes as a prayer of resolved hope, knowing that God is our exceeding joy. He is our salvation and that we will yet again praise him. Here's the key. The psalmist captures it. The most important help God can provide is to draw near with his face. His presence assures us that he knows that he's going to help. It's not wrong for us. We, we want a change of circumstances and suffering. We want a change of scenery. But this is what it looks like for God to be our exceeding joy. Outwardly, what has changed for the psalmist? Nothing that we know of. Yet this is where the presence of the Lord is most needed and most precious. One of the most powerful moments in the redemptive history as recorded at the end of Exodus chapter two. The sons of Israel cry out to God. And chapter two closes with, he heard them, he remembered them, he saw them. So the burden and bliss of our humanity, the burden, if we saw the plight of our life through God's eyes and fully understood his purposes, the bliss would be we choose every single thing that happens to us. Because we don't fully comprehend all that's going on, we must trust him. He's good. Burden, our humanity has limitations. And part of the burden of our humanity is to understand the limitations that we live with. The bliss is that we can boast in our weakness. We can look to Christ as our salvation and our strength. Burden in our humanity, we have nothing at all that is going for us. The bliss in Christ, we have no barrier in our pursuit of holiness and exceeding joy. The burden and bliss, as encapsulated in two Psalms, one I read for you earlier in Psalm 71, I won't read it again. But the latter one, Psalm 70, or excuse me, Psalm 37. Consider this, just embodies these two Psalms. The steps of a man are established by the Lord and God delights in his way. 
when he falls, he will not be hurled headlong because the Lord is the one who holds his hand. I have been young and now I am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his descendants begging bread. Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, the help of my countenance and my God.